If you'd find Revelation chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word, and uh, before we read from Revelation 2, I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2 as well. So Revelation chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. What America must do to remain great. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, First of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we thank you so much for America. For the freedoms we have as we look around this sanctuary this morning. And know that we are just one congregation of many. Meeting across this land. Opening our Bibles. Hearing the preaching of the word. And coming to you in prayer. God we thank you for these liberties. We thank you for this land. God, we are concerned about what we see in America. Indeed, we appear to be a nation that is turning our back on you and your word. God, forgive us. Lord, help us in the church to be salt and light and and to stand for your truth. And what we know has happened in our history. The men and the women who have gone ahead of us and been faithful to the gospel. Even many of our founding fathers. Father, we pray that you would strengthen your church today. 
that there would be repentance in the body of Christ, that there would be prayer, that there would be a wholesale seeking of your face. Lord, that we might have the opportunity to see a revival come to this land once again. Father, today we want to pray for our leaders, for our president, his cabinet, for the Congress. We pray that you would give them wisdom in their decisions, that they would seek you. God, we pray for our military men and women who are fighting on foreign soil. We pray for their safety that you would bring them back to their families. God, help this country to be strong. That we can continue to send out missionaries around this globe and see the Great Commission come to pass. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we look today at Revelation chapter 2, folks, we need to understand that these words are addressed not to a nation, but to an individual church body. I realize there is inherent danger in taking the words of Scripture concerning either Israel or the church and applying them to America today. However, we must realize that the scripture says that God does not change. That means that other nations can be greatly blessed by the principles that God even set down in the Old Testament for Israel. An example of that would be what he said in Psalm 33:12. He said, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord." Now those words were addressed to Israel, but they're an invitation for any nation as well. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Likewise, what God said to the Ephesian church of the first century still applies to believers today. Now there's another danger that I realize. Today we're going to take the words addressed to a church body and we're going to give them a national application. Now I must admit that that was not the original intent. However, again, we're to understand the principles by which God works with His people. There are certain standards that God desires for His people of all ages, of all times. The church at Ephesus was a church that at one time stood strong for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But it started to live on its past memory instead of pressing forward into the future with the same zeal for the Lord. And I want to submit to you today that America as a nation is in danger of doing exactly the same thing that Ephesus as a church body did. It's been said that the average age of the great civilizations in history has been 200 years. That being the case, America may be living on borrowed time. Folks, we need God as a nation. Today we're going to look at the founding principles of this nation and I think it's going to be sadly apparent to you how far we have fallen. America has had a golden age as a nation. Isn't it sad to even hear secular voices in the news today questioning if that golden age has passed? 
The church at Ephesus was being admonished to, to take a hard look at themselves so that they might address what was wrong and go back to what they had embraced in earlier times. We, we see here that God was willing to renew them, but they had to take some very definite steps, some very definite actions. First of all today, from verse 4, I want you to notice that we must take an honest look at our present. Look at what he said in verse 4 to the church at Ephesus. He said, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned or you have departed from or, or left your first love. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to take an honest look at where we are. The Lord told them that they had lost the passion of what they had been about. Now as a country, we need to take a fresh look at what is happening right now in our day. An excerpt from Charles Colson's book, Against the Night, says volumes, I think. He says, we're entering a new dark age brought on by relativism, radical individualism, and materialism. People have grown accustomed to the dark and they don't even realize anymore that the lights are out. Another writer has said, of the 19 civilizations that have existed since man has formed government, only five remain. He went on to talk about the greatness of civil civilizations comes from hearts, minds, and souls. It's an inner quality. But as a nation, we're seeing right before our very eyes that we're losing that inner quality. We need to see ourselves as we really are today. Just like the church at Ephesus needed to take a look in God's mirror and they needed to see themselves as they were. We need to do that as a nation. Just think about signs around us that tell us that we've lost something as a nation. 50% of marriages now end in divorce. One million teenage girls will get pregnant out of wedlock in a given year. Two weeks ago, a sad milestone was, was passed among minorities. It was reported that the uh, 2010 census showed that more African-American babies are now born out of wedlock to single moms than are born to families. Every 78 seconds, a teenager in America attempts suicide. Since 1960, there's been a 560% increase in violent crime. In fact, we lead the industrialized world in murder, rape, and violent crime. Child abuse is up 240% since 1976. Corruption of public officials is up 450% since 1983. Illegal drug use is up almost 1,400% since 1962. Currently, America has the highest illiteracy rate of any industrialized nation in the entire world. Listen to what George Barna has reported also about the church. His studies on the church reveal that the majority of evangelical Christians no longer believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. The majority even no longer believe that Jesus is the only way to God. 
Folks, we need to see that in many ways we are living in a new dark age, spiritually speaking. And folks, we need to realize who the country is. Who is the United States of America? We are. Just like we're the church, we're the country. And so I think that old adage rings true that we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Have we lived out Matthew 5? Jesus said we're to be salt and light in this land. He said you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Have we lived as the church with that kind of impact on our society? Yes, some of our politicians are to blame. Yes, some of our educators are to blame. Yes, some of our lawyers are to blame. And yes, some of our preachers are to blame. But yes, some of our Christians in church pews every week are also to blame. I'm afraid if we stay on the course that we're on right now, our children and grandchildren are going to know absolutely nothing of an America that once was. What must we do? Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We need, just like the church at Ephesus, to take an honest assessment of where we are. Secondly, I want you to notice from verse 5 that we must have a clear memory of our past. He said in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. The church at Ephesus was told that the journey back would, be, would start by them remembering. Now, sad to say, American history is being revised right before our very eyes. According to one American historian, textbooks since approximately 1930 are now being written from an entirely secular and economic standpoint of view. Folks, we are forgetting and we are forsaking the past. We're cutting God out of everything and some of the present day voices in America would have us believe that that's how our founding fathers desired it. They would have us to believe that our founding fathers started a country that was intended to be a purely secular state. They say taxation without representation was the issue in causing us to break away from England. And so the whole American Revolution is given a purely economic slant. But ladies and gentlemen, did you realize that taxation without representation was only one out of 27 grievances that our founding fathers had against King George and England? And taxation without representation was listed as number 17 out of 27 grievances. The other grievances had to do with the fact that the, the, the government in England was overstepping its boundaries in the colonies and government was becoming too big and too intrusive and many of the personal rights and liberties of the citizens of the, of the colonies were being violated and even their religious liberty was being uh, threatened. If modern voices do admit to a religious influence, they downplay the role of Christianity. 
Now in reality, I want us to listen to some of our voices from the past. I mean, after all, we're told that they were secular men, that, that faith didn't mean anything to them, that, that Christianity didn't really mean anything to them, and, and they, they didn't employ any of these principles, Christian principles, in, their, in the founding of this country. I mean, that's what we're being told today. Is that accurate? George Washington wrote to the chiefs of the Delaware Indians on May 12, 1779. He said, and I quote, You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. Congress will do everything they can to assist you in this wise intention. Can you imagine a president today saying that? And saying, Congress will do everything we can to help you in this wise intention. We hear today that George Washington was just a secular man, that faith didn't really mean that much to him, and yet his stepdaughter, excuse me, his adopted daughter, in her letters about her dad, she said, You would just as well have to question my dad's patriotism, his love of country and his devotion of country as to question his faith in Jesus Christ. George Washington's adopted daughter said that. John Adams, the second president of the United States said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. The day after Congress approved the Declaration of Independence, John Adams wrote two letters to his wife, Abigail. The first was short and just celebrated the fact that the Declaration had been signed. The second letter was more lengthy and more serious. He noted that he believed the signing of the Declaration of Independence... Uh, would result in a national holiday. Listen to what he said. He said, and I quote, It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Now his son, the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, one of America's greatest minds, I want you to hear what John Quincy Adams said. But, but now before I get into that, let me say something about John Quincy Adams. By age 11, he was the secretary to his father. By age 14, he was the secretary to the ambassador to Russia. He's the only president in our history that left the presidency and, was, and went down, was elected to the House of Representatives. Most go from the House of Representatives or the Senate and, and they gravitate up to the presidency. He's the only president we've ever had that went from the presidency to the House of Representatives. He read through his Bible every year and he wrote a book Or I should say he wrote letters to his son about how to study the Bible. And those letters to his son have been compiled in a book about how to study the Bible. John Quincy Adams said, So great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens of their country and respectable members of society. You don't hear that much today. 
Because you know what we do today? We highlight about 5% of our 250 founding fathers, 56 of whom, of course, signed the Declaration of Independence. We, we highlight about 5% of them, and we ignore the other 95% who were deeply religious. They were evangelicals. Many of them were theologians, and some of them were even members of the clergy. Thomas Jefferson may have been one of the two least religious uh, founders of our country. And yet, you know what Thomas Jefferson made certain of? When we moved in the new Capitol building in 1800, he made certain that every week in the new Capitol building, there was a church service that met and he attended that church service. And now Jonathan will love this one. He also ordered that the Marine Corps band and orchestra would be who would play each and every week in that church service there in the Capitol building. In his treaties that he wrote to the Indians, he put in those treaties that the country would fund Christian missionaries going to them and evangelizing them and, that con- and he had Congress to ratify that. Can you imagine a president doing that today? Putting in there, putting in a treaty, making a treaty with a group of people and putting in that treaty that we would actually fund Christian missionaries going to them and having Congress ratify that. Thomas Jefferson did that. James Garfield, the the 20th president of the United States, on one occasion he preached a revival service. He preached 19 sermons at a local revival. They saw 34 people come to faith in Jesus Christ and he baptized himself 31 out of the 34. Listen to the words of the Rhode Island Charter of 1683 which begins... We submit our persons, lives, and estates into our Lord Jesus Christ and and the King of kings and Lord of lords and to all those perfect and most absolute laws of His given us in His most holy word. Benjamin Franklin at the Constitution Convention, June 28, 1787 said, I've lived, sir, a long time and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without His concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. 
Again, listen to these words by Thomas Jefferson. He said, and I quote, And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with His wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and His justice cannot sleep forever. Here's a statement by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of the, of, of, of the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the U.S. in 1892. Now, again, here was the decision and the statement by the U.S. Supreme Court. This is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there's a single voice making this affirmation. These are not individual sayings, declarations of private persons. They are organic utterance. They speak the voice of the entire people. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. U.S. Supreme Court said that in 1892. Now here's a good one. Imagine this being said today, John Jay, the the first Chief Justice the U.S. Supreme Court said, and again I quote, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Supreme Court Justice say that. The North Carolina Constitution of 1876 said, No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority of the Old or New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state. Now you might wonder about that one in your own state. Why is it then that we're electing some of the people that we are? Well, there's an update on that one. You may recall in recent news, back in 2009, Cecil Bothwell was elected to the city council of Asheville, North Carolina. Cecil Bothwell is an atheist. The leader of the NAACP in the area challenged his election to office based on the North Carolina Constitution that I just read. Well, the legal minds sided against those who challenged the election of Cecil Bothwell. They quoted a Supreme Court decision back in 1961... Uh, where they decided that state constitutions could not have things in them that went against the first and the fourteenth amendment of the United States Constitution. And so he was allowed to stay in office. 
See how we've fallen? See how we've slipped? Let's continue though with some voices from the past. Abraham Lincoln said, It's the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Now here's a good one with reference to the education of our children. Noah Webster wrote, The Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. No truth is more evident than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. John Hancock, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, you look at the signatures on the Declaration of Independence and John Hancock's signature is the real large, fancy, stylish, flamboyant one. And because of that, it's come down to us in history nowadays that if you want somebody to attach their signature to something or sign on the dotted line, what do we say? Put your John Hancock down. It goes back to his signature being the large, flamboyant, stylish one. He was also a governor governor of Massachusetts. And while he was governor of Massachusetts, he called for a day of prayer and fasting for the citizens of his state. And he said what Christians need to do as they pray and fast, they need to pray for anybody in this state who may not know Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, their Savior and Lord. We need to pray that those citizens would be converted and come to faith in Christ. We hear today a lot about this supposed wall of separation that's built into the Constitution. And actually that phrase is not in the Constitution. It's being abused today and taken out of context. The phrase wall of separation appeared in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist of Connecticut. There had been some fear that the Episcopal or the Congregationalist denominations were going to have a state church in the colonies. And people had fled England over this issue because the Anglican church was the state church there. And people feared that the same thing could end up happening in America. And Baptists, of course, have always cherished religious freedom. And so it's not surprising that Baptists were right square in the middle of this one. Danbury Baptist wrote to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson turned around and wrote back to them. And the phrase wall of separation takes place in that letter that Jefferson wrote to them. Jefferson's point was that the federal government would not establish such a church. There would be maintained a wall of separation. In other words, he said what happened in England is not going to turn around and happen in America. Now this is being misrepresented today to say that the Constitution or the First Amendment in particular forbids the voice of faith and particularly the voice of Christianity from being heard in the public square. But this is not what Thomas Jefferson said. Listen to what others have said on this very issue, on this very point. Justice Joseph Story 
U.S. Supreme Court, 1833. He said, we're not to attribute this prohibition of a national religious establishment in the First Amendment to an indifference to religion in general and especially to Christianity which none could hold in more reverence than the framers of the Constitution. Probably at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and of the amendments to it, the general, if not the universal, sentiment in America was that Christianity ought to receive encouragement from the state. Again, from the pen of the same justice, he said the real object of the First Amendment was not to countenance, much less to advance, Mohammedanism or Judaism or infidelity by prostrating Christianity but to exclude all rivalry among Christian sects and to prevent any national ecclesiastical establishment which would give to a hierarchy the exclusive patronage of the national government. So you see the whole point of the First Amendment And the letter by by Thomas Jefferson was to assure the public that what happened in England with the state church was not going to happen again. As Jefferson put in his letter, as the First Amendment states, it's not that we're to have freedom from religion as some historical pundits and revisionists are trying to say today. The original intent was never to remove Christianity out of the public square. The intent was to ease the minds of the people like the Danbury Baptist, that the Episcopal Church or the Congregational Church or the Baptist Church even for that matter would not become the state church. But today revisionists have so distorted that that it's not even funny anymore. Now folks, what I want you to see is that America has a rich, rich history as a nation. Did you realize that, that Congress in 1781, because Congress determined that there was a shortage of Bibles in America, Congress authorized the printing of Bibles for America. 1781, Congress. Authorized the printing of Bibles. Harvard was uh, started as a Christian institution in 1638 for the propagation of the gospel and training of ministers to go out with the Great Commission. I could go on and say the same thing about Princeton in 1746 and Yale in 1701 and Dartmouth in 1754. Many of the institutions of this land began as Christian institutions committed to the Word of God and committed to the Great commission the first national Bible society the American Bible society was begun by some of our founding fathers not by pastors not by ministers and not by mission agencies some of our founding fathers what's happened What did God say to the church there at Ephesus in verse 5? He said, you've taken a great fall. Folks, an example, a great example of how we've fallen can be seen as we examine the writings of a Frenchman by the name of Alexis Tocqueville. 
Alexis Tocqueville lived from 1805 to 1859. And a lot of people back then were talking about American exceptionalism. Why is America so great? So Alexis Tocqueville, a Frenchman, traveled to the United States. And he went through our towns and our villages. And yes, he wrote about politics and he wrote about governing and all that. But you know what he concluded? He concluded that really what makes America great, what stands out about America is her faith, her Christian faith specifically. And he wrote about morale, our high morality at the time. A quote of his is that there can really be no liberty, no true liberty without morality, nor can there be morality without faith. It's one of his famous quotes. He, taught, he went back to, 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 to France and, and, and he talked about, he, he wrote a large volume about what made America great. And again, he talked about going into our villages and towns and, and seeing the level of Christian missions and, and how Christians cared for the benevolent needs of the less fortunate. And about the greatness of America's faith. And he wrote, uh, he wrote his findings in a big, huge volume. But today, students don't read that big, huge volume anymore of Alexis Tocqueville. There's a little, skinny, paperback, abridged volume of his writings, of his discoveries of what made America great. And guess what does not show up in that abridged volume? The faith, the Christian faith and missions and Christian benevolent work and morality of America. All of that's been cut out of what our students today read. We've taken a great fall. William Bennett in America, What's Going On, also points out how we've fallen. He writes, in the last 30 years, our population has increased 41% and government spending on social programs has risen from $142 billion to almost $1 trillion. But we've seen at the same time a 500% increase in violent crime, 400% rise in illegitimate births. About 1.5 million babies are aborted, he says, in our land every year. New curriculum has been written for New York's first graders to redefine homosexual households as being normal and propagating the myth that fully 10% of each and every class will grow up themselves to be homosexual. He says, when did all this unhappiness in our land begin? Was it in 1963 when the Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional to pray in public schools? Or was it in 1973 when the Roe v. Wade decision legalized abortion for any reason? Did it begin in 1925 when Roger Baldwin began the ACLU openly stating his belief that the First Amendment could be used to impose a liberal social agenda on the U.S. and later in 1935 he said communism is the goal? Now the First Amendment, Bennett goes on to say, which was specifically intended to guarantee freedom of expression, is being used to severely curb religious liberty. Now we live in a land where expansive rights are given to the pornographers and at the same time telling students that uttering the name of God in a graduation exercise is no longer permitted. 
End of quote. Folks, what can we do? Exactly what the church at Ephesus was told to do. Thirdly, I want you to see from verse 5, we must repent. We must repent. When a person, a church body, or a nation has sinned against God, there's always only one solution. And what is that solution? Repentance. That means we've got to have a change of mind. America needs desperately a change of mind in her attitude to God. America is in desperate need of repentance if we expect the blessings of God to remain on us. The least we can do is for the church in America to be repentant. Folks, we need to remember why we have been a great nation and we need to turn back to God. No other nation has on her currency in God we trust. No other nation has its legislative bodies opened in prayer every day by a personal chaplain. No other nation has a national day of thanksgiving set aside to express her gratitude to God for His goodness. Our prosperity and our progress has not been due to simple luck, but to our sovereign God. In verse 5, they were told that if they did not repent, God was going to remove their lampstand. The lampstand was the church. And so God was saying, if you don't change and repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to come among you and I'm going to close your doors. In other, in other words, you're not going to exist anymore. And we know from history that apparently the church at Ephesus did not repent. Because you get into later church history and and the church that at one time had been such a bright shining light of the gospel to Asia, to Asia Minor, no longer existed. So apparently they didn't listen to God's counsel. You say, "But, but pastor remember that was a church. Can we say the same about a nation? Well, listen to what God said about Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Now folks, if God looked at Israel, His beloved... 
His beloved, His chosen people, and said, if you forget me, you're going to perish. Then who are we in America to think somehow or another we can forget God and get away with it? The God whom we claim to trust is also the God that we better learn to fear. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We need to realize that God is not only our greatest hope, but He could also be our biggest threat. The scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What do we need to do? We need to return to Him. This morning I want to ask you, I want to invite you now to pray for America. Pray for America's leaders. Pray for America's military. Pray for America's schools. For America's teachers. For America's pastors. For America's pulpits. For America's churches. Pray for America. That we would see and come to understand our rich religious heritage, Christian heritage, and that we would repent and go back to that. Amen? We need to pray for that. And I want to also invite you this morning to commit your own life to being salt and light. Ladies and gentlemen, we have 16 million among us, just Southern Baptists, who are on our church rolls who claim to be Christians. 16 million of us, just us. Could you imagine if those 16 million in this land rose up And we were the salt and the light that God has commanded us to be. Can you imagine the difference that we could make? Amen? Would you pray please? Pray with me. Stand and pray with me please. God, we do pray for America. We thank you for our rich, rich history. Our rich Christian history. The the faith of our founding fathers. The statements that they wrote about their Christian faith. That if we only read their statements, there would be no doubt in our minds that these were religious men. And they intended the Christian faith to be even a part of public life. Father, we pray for this country that we would return to our roots. That you would help America to remain great. God, we look at the headlines every day. We see what's going on across the land. And and we must confess, quite frankly, that we're losing the battle. But God, the battle's in your hands. You're sovereign God and you will prevail. Either in blessing or judgment of this nation. God, we pray that it would be in blessing. That we would not forget you. That we would come back to you and listen to your voice once again. Help us to pray for our president, his cabinet members, all of Congress, the Senate, House of Representatives, all of our leaders, our military, God, the leaders across this land in local governments. And God, help us to be salt and light. Out in the marketplace where we live day in and day out, 
that we, by our testimony and by our convictions and by our lifestyle, that we would make a difference for Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.